You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during this show are those of the hosts and our guests and are not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we will be discussing two films that are about to open at Film Scene, as well as an ongoing film series. Our lineup includes Steven Spielberg's Hook, starring the late, great Robin Williams. Hook will be playing at Film Scene on Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours at Film Scene. Next, we'll be discussing Life After Beth, starring Aubrey Plaza, which opens at Film Scene this Friday. Finally, we'll be discussing Film Scene's Late Shift at the Grindhouse series with Late Shift host, Ross Meyer. But before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the Programming Director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and I am Leah Vonderheide, the Executive Director of the Bijou Film Board. I should also mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in, in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start, our, let's start with our first film, Hook, a Steven Spielberg classic from 1991. The film is a clever sequel to the classic tale of Peter Pan. The film is a childhood favorite of mine and Catherine's, but I believe you've only just watched it for the first time, Changmin, so I'm pretty excited to hear your first impressions. Well, first I would like to say a few words about Robin Williams. The video After Hours is showing Hook in the memory of Robin Williams a late great comedian who brought laughter and fun to our lives. And the Bijou Film Board proudly presents this film to our audiences, hoping to bring all these precious moments alive again on the big screen. So, watching Hook for the first time is a very interesting experience to me. In fact, I don't quite remember if this is the first time I've ever seen this film. I have to admit, although I've already grown up, the film is still very refreshing. It is almost like the Lord of the Rings before 2000 with less seriousness and more fun. And again, you can see how familiar Spielberg is with all the classic in the history of cinema. For example, the windless web took kids away just like the tornado which brings Dorothy to Oz. And the way Maggie sings in the film is quite like Gesela Sela in the, in the Man Who Knew Too Much by Hitchcock. And the underwater scene with the mermaids bringing oxygen to Peter is a slight reference to the films made by the great magician George Méliès. I should add, this is probably the most pleasurable way of sustaining your life underwater. <laughs> so this is the word of magic, of childhood, of the everlasting possibility of renewal. The word responds to the people within. The Neverland functions as a loop Gulliver machine. Every tiny move leads to another, and every one of them brings up new visual excitements. In that sense, this is the prototype for the films like The Hobbits and other fantasy adventure films. So, Leah and Catherine, I know you both love this film very much. Can you talk about your experiences when watching this film as kids, 
and watching this film again just recently. Do you feel any differently toward this film? Well, I remember watching this film and being very scared when I was a kid. <laughs> really, it's very spooky. The beginning of the film with with the kids being abducted, you know, and all of the little details like the hook um, as the latch on the window. And that slowly turning, and the the knife in the door, um, all of that stuff just was like so thrilling but frightening to me um, as a kid watching this. But it helps to like usher you into then the kind of relief that takes place when you're in Neverland. Then when you're in this kind of fantasy, beautiful place, it kind of it helps. To establish this like dichotomy between the real world, which can be scary and spooky, to this like Neverland world, which at in at least when we're ushered into it in the film is just such a beautiful fantasy land, um, which has its own dangers, but it's not as really I don't know hitting close to home maybe as the beginning of the film, which is so frightening to watch um, as a kid, I think. Um, but it helps you get into that like mind space of the anything could happen and um, this new magical land is kind of a refuge. I don't know. Were you still scared then watching the children be abducted from their rooms, watching it now? Or did it feel more hokey this time? Well... Take the kids, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Don't like them. Uh, no, um, I guess, yeah, it does feel a little bit more like, you know, a, a conceit for the beginning of a, of a story. You know, it's not um, the same kind of jeopardy that you feel as a kid watching a kid be in danger, you know. Um, now it seems like, a, oh my goodness, this is how they're entering this world of this movie but um I don't know so yeah it's 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 way more of a um somewhat comfortingly familiar plot device maybe when you're older and seen I have seen lots and lots of movies (laughs) see I think that's funny because I don't actually have a memory of being afraid during that particular part of the film um, I actually really enjoyed the fantasy land of the nursery in the sort of this London old home um, and the the sort of excitement of the windows being blown open. Um, But watching it this time, and maybe this is just because I'm really old now, I (laughs) thought about this in the frame of mind of the parents and I just thought, oh my gosh, what if (laughs) your kids were abducted? I mean, that's like, that's your worst nightmare. I mean, there's nothing worse than a parent sort of coming home to find their children uh, taken from the home. So I had like almost like a, I'm way out on the other side, apparently, for some reason. <laughs> I would say that's, that's two sides of a coin because although you are afraid of this adventure, but you actually want to go on, uh, want to, go on to this adventure. So it's, you are afraid at the same time, but you, are, you, you have this high expectation of what is going to happen. But to continue our discussion of fear and spookiness. I mean, watching this film as a grown-up or an adult, I found some of these lines are not as innocent as we might remember. For example, when Hook brought Jack Peterson the clock sh- to the clock shop, 
He told Jack he gutted one of the parrots he made on the sea. And Peter has this really strange relationship with Wendy, which is literally incestuous because uh, she is his great grandmother, right? But like she also has this kind of love affair with her. So it's really weird to see that sort of sentiments presenting itself in this film. So I don't think that he's uh, that she's actually the a, like a grandmother. Fi- I think that she's a, sort of a grandmotherly figure, but I think that the he was like adopted in um, away. From- it is still weird then because then he's adopted in by Wendy. Yeah. Who? But he, he because but then he marries her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> or her granddaughter, right? Yeah. Are we two generations down by the time he decides to settle down with uh, Moira? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're. I think you're fair, Changmin, to say that there are some sort of s- suspect <laughs> plot lines in yeah. this sequel to Peter Pan that are necessary because of needing to explain sort of Wendy growing up and Peter finally deciding to come. Uh, come away from Neverland, um, but she would have been too old by that point. I mean, he doesn't settle down with Wendy. We know that from the Peter Pan story. He he doesn't want to grow up at that point. So, yeah. I know. My feeling was like, as an adult, when I watch this film, I feel like it is weird to to put your children in that kind of imaginary situation that you have to imagine like if you identify with Peter Pan, you have to imagine yourself being like one time, like long, long time ago, you have to be like, you have this love love affair with your great grandma. So it's, <laughs> I'm just, really, because that's the thing I was thinking when I watched this film. It's like, um, oh, oh my God. So it's really hard to describe. So like, I'm, I'm just curious because I mean, I'm a male spectator. So, Maybe it's just my fantasy, but like. (laughs) (laughs) I I wasn't really distracted by that at all. But I will say that uh, Jack, the child actor playing Jack, is just does a phenomenal performance of portraying uh, that kind of a child that wants more attention from his father and is but is aware enough to know that his dad is making bad decisions, but still sort of desiring that relationship with him. Um, I mean, you you talk about some of the more adult themes in uh, in Hook, Changmin, and I, one of the great opening scenes is Jack drawing a picture of his father uh, falling out of a burning plane <laughs> with, with no parachute, where all the other family members have a parachute, and and then you actually see the scene. I mean, this is all right at the very beginning, but you see sort of Robin Williams sit down next to his son and say, "So why didn't I get a parachute in the picture when he should know full well?" It's because he missed the baseball game. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting, like this idea that, again, Peter Pan waited and waited and waited to grow up. Typical. Um, (laughs) uh, But then once he does, he goes like too far, right? Just like way too far into the adult world, quote unquote, and has to be kind of brought back to a happy medium. And that's part of the like, struggle with the with the son is that the son is trying to have an image of a father that isn't the hundred percent different from himself you know so it's really this kind of identity crisis going on between the son and peter pan and peter pan's like uh notions of what adulthood means 
right? And it was supposed to mean, I don't know, but maybe that's considering the time like lapse that happens, like between <laughs> when Peter Pan goes to Neverland and then when he comes back and becomes an adult person. Um, maybe he's just enacting a different time period's idea of adult masculinity. Oh, I don't oh, think yeah. that's true at all. <laughs> that, no way. I'm just kidding. I think, I mean, right, isn't Neverland the whole, it's just, it's a metaphor for what it does mean to grow up, that you have to relinquish your childhood and your childhood fantasies to be a proper adult. And there are those of us that um, don't want to do that. But the lost boys literally are the embodiment of your lost childhood, the thing that you can't reach anymore, the thing that you sort of relinquished and giving up your ability to imagine, you know, grand banquets the way that they do in the film eventually, right? Like it's all, am I wrong? Is, this, is it not all an allegory? <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it is, but I think the, that Hook is trying to tell us that, that that's, you know, there's some really powerful, wonderful things about that, like magical thinking of, of the, being, being a child, right? That you have to maintain as an adult or else you become... Uh, a soul-sucking lawyer, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, suddenly I have this question because, like, why is this film title Hook, but not Peter Pan, not, like, adult version of Peter Pan, not, uh, like, finding Peter Pan? <laughs> I wonder because, like, we are talking about Peter Pan and, like, smaller version of Peter Pan and all these things are about Peter Pan, but the film is actually titled Hook. So why is that? I mean, I just want to ask you too. Well, because Peter Pan, as uh, the old lady Wendy says, has become a pirate, right? She says, so Peter, you've become a pirate. Peter has become Hook in his modern day manifestation. <laughs> so it's he is Hook and he has to... Uh, Redeem himself. Yes, the story of redemption. <laughs> and it's also like before all of those uh, new narratives that were told from the point of view of the villain, right? That happened a few years later, I think, like Wicked. So people wouldn't necessarily have expected like a telling of the story from Hook's perspective. Have they done that yet? Does that film exist? I don't think no. so. <laughs> Trademark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that um, it's really interesting to think about like Hook as not only, yeah, this this figure that Peter has become, but also maybe like Hook as a traumatic event that causes you to like change your life. I don't know. Inspirational. Well said, Catherine. <laughs> I think we should end on that note. Yeah. Again, Hook is playing at Film Scene this Saturday night at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours at Film Scene. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss life after Beth. Hello, I'm John Lithgow. Manatees are unique among the most amazing animals on Earth, but they're endangered. We pose the greatest threat to their survival. Many manatees are killed or injured by boats or other recreational activities. I'm a writer of children's books, including one about manatees, and I believe education is the key. You can be part of the solution. Please contact Save the Manatee Club right now. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. 
This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Up next, Life After Beth. Life After Beth features Aubrey Plaza as a girl who miraculously rises from the dead, much to the delight of her bereaved boyfriend, Zach, played by Dane DeHaan, and of course her parents, played by John C. Riley and Molly Shannon, who declare their daughter's mysterious return to be something of a biblical resurrection. Life After Beth, which of course rhymes with life after death, is a hybrid genre, romantic comedy meets zombie thriller. It seems to me that Aubrey Plaza, best known for her role as April on Parks and Recreation, was born to play this part, an aloof girlfriend turned violent and insatiable zombie. But there are other stellar performances in this film, including Molly Shannon's portrayal of Beth's mom, Mrs. Slocum. When we first meet Mrs. Slocum, it's at Beth's funeral. She tries to work through her grief by cleaning and organizing Beth's possessions, and she tells Zach that she regrets not having taken more pictures of Beth while she was alive. This regret and the very notion of regret in the wake of losing someone you love is at the center of this film. What would you have said differently? For example, if you knew you were saying the last words your girlfriend or daughter would ever hear. However, this film sidesteps the overwhelming melodrama we might expect in searching for the answers to such questions by bringing Beth back to life only a mere few days after her death. We actually get to see Mrs. Slocum follow her zombie daughter around with a digital camera, despite the fact that she is now creating memories of her daughter's slowly rotting skin and rapidly worsening rage. But despite the many funny moments of Life After Beth, I did find myself more contemplative than cheerful at the film's conclusion. So I ask you, fellow banterers, did you laugh or did you cry? Well... I did not cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so impossible to cry. Do you, or do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> well, I think the, the film itself positioned uh, in a very, very strange in-between state, be, like between the old very seriousness of Walking Dead and old very like lightness of uh, Shaun of the Dead. So it's like, it's for... Like a mature audience, it is hard to really find yourself in in this film, actually. Like, how am I going to deal with the reactions of the characters in the film? And what I'm going to interpret their reactions. So it's like, because like, we see the male protagonist, like he's wandering around, like following uh, his undead girlfriend, like, but... He's like, he's weird. He's geeky, right? He's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, to me, it's not like a romantic comedy. It's more like a geeky comedy. It's like an anti-romantic comedy, I think, because it's kind of all about the end of a relationship, right? No matter if it's, if a, if it's a, like a traumatic event, <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, uh, or just like a lifestyle incompatibility. One person is a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> But there's so many relationship jokes in this movie that, like, I found it to be so difficult to even focus on the, like, plot. There's just, like, so many jokes about how girls like to go hiking. And, like... You know, just, oh, I didn't even realize like that was a joke. Yeah. And I was like, they should have hiked more often. <laughs> <laughs> are the tar- target audience. 
<laughs> yeah, just like all of this stuff, you know, like even there's a moment where um, they're like bantering <laughs> um, about where they want to eat. And he's like, where do you want to eat? She's like, I don't know. Where do you want to eat? You know? <laughs> it's like she has to eat a specific thing. <laughs> she has to eat flesh. <laughs> so this like like totally um, normal argument that couples have about like, I don't know, whatever. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Like that just becomes like one of these central things. But I don't know. I think we should talk about how like what it then says about what it's trying to say about relationships and certainly the girls in the relationship. Um, well, I want to bring up one thing about this hiking joke because <laughs> to me, like, I don't know, contemporary boys and girls love hiking because we also <laughs> see that in boyhood, right? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the film is full of hiking and camping. That's how we stay in touch with our childhood and <laughs> thus don't become evil lawyers. Yeah. So Neverland is with one sort nature. of hiking it, to you. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Neverland is hiking. Wow. I don't even think we have to discuss anything else. I think we figured, we figured it all out. <laughs> um, so wait, you think hiking is a contemporary... Is it a contemporary thing that happens in relationships or just sort of a contemporary modern phenomenon i don't know i think to me it's just it it is sort of like a chic thing to do it's like very in trend like you have to go hiking to prove like i know you i mean the thing you are able to do on is not just studying and you could be in touch with this kind of nature that sort of thing so i know why contemporary directors are so obsessed with the idea of hiking i mean especially the part uh, it played in like boys and girls' lives because everyone in Los Angeles hikes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it just seeps into the culture. Then all of our movies are about hiking because <laughs> Los Angeles is obsessed with hiking. I thought this movie was all about how to grieve and mourn, and you're telling me it's really just about young people in dysfunctional relationships. Yes, is that okay. yes. <laughs> Totes. Wow. <laughs> um. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Well, here's another question, and maybe this is also totally irrelevant. But given that um, zombie films are usually modern zombie films, sort of have a, an accompanying zombie apocalypse um, that you know are in some way supposed to reveal our fears as a society about uh, the fragility of civilization and society, and about how we're always just on the brink of collapse. Um, you know, supposedly Night of the Living Dead, right, made in the late 60s, is embodying a lot of fears about nuclear destruction. Um, so is that not at all what's happening in this film? Do we still have those fears? Is that still a subtext? Um, or have we sort of, have we taken the zombie genre and just, is it in a whole new world, a whole new narrative world at this point? Well, there's been so many different, like, iterations of the zombie, like, catalyst right because there's there's like the idea of the virus that's also certainly been in several films but with this one we don't really get to know what the it's like sort of a mysterious like that's not the 
point of the movie, I guess, it's like it's just sort of a coincidental thing that like, oh, this weird zombie thing's happening. So, but we don't get the like curiosity necessarily of like why this is happening, only that it is happening. Um, so maybe that's sort of the traumatic commentary that like it's so impossible to know how these weird traumatic phenomena happen, you know, and but they just happen and people deal with them in really strange ways, and so it's not even about trying to figure out what the source is or trying to like find a cure quote unquote, but like, how do you just like maneuver through a scenario? Well, I, I would say like, if, if we want to talk about zombie films in terms of political allegory, I would say like the films made in the late 60s and the 70s are, are presenting a worldview of cold war actually. Yeah. So it, there's this, very dichotomical way of presenting uh, life and death and zombie and living, that sort of thing. But like, if we move a little bit forward to like contemporary cinema scene, we could see that zombie becomes a global phenomenon, especially in the films like World War Z or Walking Dead. So it's, I mean, if you, if you want to read this as a political allegory, I would say it's just, I mean, it's, War Globalization. On, yeah, or like just war on terror because like yeah. it's it's everywhere and it's not material anymore. It's in the air, I would say. So, so uh, in a sense, I think Catherine is right here. It's not about finding a cure or finding a way to deal with it. It's just how you can survive in this kind of climate or in this kind of environment that is full of danger. Yeah, I think that's a really um, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought of um, sort of laying over the uh, contemporary, more contemporary situation of sort of terrorism that's coming from you. You don't know where and you don't know when next. You're just sort of constantly on the reactive um, or maneuvering, as you said, Catherine. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I know that you guys pretty much, like, this is apparently one big relationship joke, but it totally <laughs> made me think also of a lot of um, recent uh, television series, the television series Resurrection. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, or um, the French television series. Uh, it's called The Returned in England, uh, in English, or the Les Revenants, um, which was also itself based on a French film called They Came Back from 2004. But it's the idea of, like, people returning from the dead and not knowing that they're dead and, and, and the people who are alive having to sort of react to their presence once again in their lives and being so happy that they're back, but, but not having any idea how to sort of reconcile the fact that they've been trying to move on from that death. And now this person is back, this thing that they've been longing for um, and just sort of the general confusion that that process, uh, you know, confusion that that creates um, so I don't know. I still, I still really think that this, this film makes a, an interesting case for the grief process and how sort of messy it is <laughs> and how hard it would be to sort of let somebody go. Um, and, and how sort of tormented you would feel inside about both wanting them. I mean, the great line from Zach is I sometimes wish she would just stay dead. Um, right. And just sort of wanting them to sort of be dead, but at the same time being terrified of sort of letting go of those memories or forgetting certain aspects of their character. Um, so no, I can't convince either of you that this is also happening in this film. 
Well, I would say it. Uh, both of what we discussed are in this film. I would say. I mean, it's about grief processing, but it's told in a way that is. I mean, that is full of、uh, relationship jokes. So it's. I mean, it's definitely about、uh, grief processing. Like、uh, when you end a relationship with someone, how how are you going to deal with that? And sometimes when you end a relationship that is not really,、um, that doesn't really end, how are you going to deal with that sort of、uh, unstable state? So I mean, that's definitely there. So. I I wouldn't say it's just about relationship jokes, but like if we you want, you don't think that all ex girlfriends are inherently zombies? <laughs> <laughs> I just wish they would stay dead. Yeah, <laughs> that's awful. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely a little bit. I would say because you feel like they linger on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is this just a big joke about like having to run into your ex boyfriend or girlfriend after you've broken up and just hating that experience and feeling sort of、uh, like you're captured by it, like they're about to eat you alive? <laughs> yeah, I sort of felt like it was pretty harsh on on like a guy's view of an ex girlfriend. You know, like it was pretty like that. I just couldn't get that out of my head while watching the film. Like, wow, this this is rough. Like. How how do people see this the, the end of a relationship and the kind of like return of the repressed、uh, <laughs> of the relationship, right? Like the things that you didn't do or say or whatever, but also the things that like the other person would hold against you perpetually because the relationship ended before those things could be addressed. You know, so I don't know. It's、um, It seemed like, yeah, it was like this version of the return of the repressed of the relationship, right? I don't know. Yeah, I definitely had a few、um, conflicted feelings about、uh, about some of the sort of、uh, just yeah the gender dynamics, yeah, particularly <laughs> as the film、um, did in fact progress. But maybe we should leave it there.、Um, Life after Beth opens this Friday at Film Scene, and will continue throughout the following week. Check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org, for a complete list of showtimes. Before we move on to our、uh, next discussion, let's check on the weather. It is currently 82 degrees Fahrenheit in Iowa City. It's fair.、Uh, the low tonight will be at 71 degrees, with only a slight chance of thunderstorms, 20%. Tomorrow, high of ninety-one, but breezy,、uh, and that's about it. Welcome back to Biju Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. During our third segment, we'll be discussing Late Shift at the Grindhouse, a series that features low-budget B movies, horror and gore fests, and camp classics every Wednesday night at Film Scene, starting at 10 p.m. The host of Late Shift at the Grindhouse is Ross Meyer, who is joining us today to banter about the series. Welcome, Ross. Hello. Thank you for having me. Not only is Ross the host of the Late Shift at the Grindhouse, he is also the head projectionist at Film Scene, as well as a previous director of the Bijou Film Board. Is that correct? That is correct. Oh, excellent!、Uh, 
before we bring Ross into our banter, Catherine, perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the Late Shift series. All right. Well, first and foremost, uh, film scene as an independent movie theater has to kind of address these kind of unique needs that unique uh, that independent movie theaters provide. So independent movie theaters thrive on programming that can bring varied audiences in for an experience, not just a film. Late Shift at the Grindhouse is an example of one such experience-based series. It isn't the only series at the theater, but it garners press and audience regulars because of its theme. Late Shift allows us to dip into the bad objects of film history, seek out pleasure, horror, and shock. I say bad objects because the so-called B-movies that make up this series aren't meant to be good objects. They tend to be the rawest form of cinematic entertainment, visceral and evocative, but not critically appeasing or stable, at least in mainstream viewer standards. But that doesn't mean they aren't fun or revealing of important trends or social implications or even radically provocative. They just don't have to be. They don't have to be anything in particular, and even with their identification solidly in genre filmmaking, they break patterns. But perhaps our guest, Ross Meyer, as the creator and curator of the series, can share some of his thoughts on the series in general to start the discussion. Uh, well, so, I, I, yeah, I guess this whole series came about um, before I was um, even you know employed at Film Scene. I was asked by uh, Andy Brody, one of the the uh, programmer down there um, before film scene even existed to uh, you know help him out with the organization of just a, a one-time weekend film festival. Uh, this was at the time when film scene as a, as a movie theater looked like it was going to be a ways down the road. And uh, we thought, you know, we just do a little, a little thing just to kind of keep the film scene name in people's minds. And, uh, and then when, when the, the space downtown, the Ped Mall opened up, uh, the festival got put off to the side, but it, it kind of evolved from there into a, a weekly program, uh, which so far has been pretty successful. We've uh, been drawing pretty good crowds, and uh, I think we sent people home happy every every single Wednesday night. <laughs> well, um, I know, Ross, that you um, and I share this experience. We both are independent video store veterans. Do you think that this has totally shaped your creation of the series and your you know, picks for films, well, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, certainly. Uh, yeah, the, I, I owned a video rental store for quite a few years before that. I had managed uh, a few different video stores before I perhaps foolishly bought into what was kind of a dying industry. But uh, yeah, I, I managed an independent video store. And of course we carried the biggest, cheesiest Hollywood new releases, but we also carried all of this weird off the beaten path stuff, whether it's, you know, foreign language titles, uh, documentaries, but also, uh, you know, genre films and exploitation films, uh, the, the really off the beaten path stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of got a taste for some of this stuff. And I also made connections with independent filmmakers and independent film uh, distributors and producers. Uh, some of those connections that are still going strong today and have, you know, helped us uh, stay kind of on the cutting edge of, you know, independent low-budget genre cinema. We've, we've played some stuff. You know, I think we've had some, some Midwest premieres of a few things. Yeah, it's great. Um, so in your experience programming, quote-unquote, B-movies, do you think that B-movie history is particularly important to you or 
you know, as a fan, do B movies in their context just provide a lot for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I really think, um, you know, B movies, uh, you know, the, the exploitation films, the drive in cinema, that type of stuff. Uh, I think it's a fascinating genre and, and it's one that, you know, Hollywood kind of returns to time and time again when, when the going gets tough, when the, you know, the, when the studio's uh, losing money, you know, they always kind of go back to the, the low budget uh, genre pictures to kind of get, uh, get the books looking good again. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's definitely a genre that's helped a lot of people start their careers. Um, you know, if you look at Roger Corman and the people that he's turned out, um, you look at, um, you know, a, somebody like Bruce Campbell, who's thought of as, as, you know, a B movie star, but in all reality these days, I mean, Bruce Campbell is a mainstream television star. You know, he's, he's, he's probably better known for television these days than he ever was for the evil dead movies, but he certainly got his start, you know, making low budget haunted house, haunted cabin in the woods movies. Can we just clarify now is, does the term B movie, can you use that interchangeably with exploitation genre as a term or are we, are they slightly different or how do you, I mean, you know, B movies or grindhouse movies, it's all kind of a various forms of catch all. I mean, the B, the, the phrase B picture comes from, you know, uh, sort of the early days of the studio system when you had a studios that made, you know, top of the bill product. And then you had B studios that made, you know, the second movie on a double feature or, you know, when once upon a time movie theaters all played double and triple features or two features, a cartoon, a newsreel, you know, all of that, you had an A picture and a B picture. And the A picture was the one, you know, at the top of the marquee. That was the one that people were coming to see. The B picture was oftentimes a lower budgeted movie, you know, or, or something that had been around the block a few times. So that's kind of where that term comes from. Um, and, you know, exploitation films, uh, you know, there have been exploitation films as long as there have been films, really. But, you know, an exploitation film is kind of a, again, a catch-all genre that for, you know, films that are easily exploitable and audiences that are easily exploitable. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, a, just a whole laundry list of, of bad, you know, exploitation subgenres. And, you know, I say bad, but I mean there, there's bad ones, but then there's, there's, you know, good pictures within the scope of just every genre, whether you're talking about haunted house movies or, you know, non-sploitation movies. There's all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that. But what is non-sploitation? Non-sploitation is a sort of a, a niche within a niche of uh, <laughs> of, of uh, movies. You know, there was a handful of them in the seventies and even in the eighties, and there's stuff, Sister Act, you know, Sister still Act. getting made oh. today. And yeah, you could definitely. <laughs> I definitely believed you for a yeah. second. <laughs> but you know, Ken Russell, who's made lots of classy pictures. You know, he made uh, The Devils, which was a you know, so is, I'm sorry, but is nun exploitation like nuns behaving badly, or yeah. is it like horror meets nuns uh, you know, behaving it can be badly? A little both, but certainly some nuns behaving badly, and the kind of things. <laughs> a lot of times, uh, you know, coming out of uh, Italy or other, you know, particularly Catholic countries, also tend to make the the sauciest 
Catholics behaving badly type of movies. Talk uh, about the return of the repressed. Well, can you give us a brief introduction to the history of exploitation films? Like, like what's the first exploitation film you could ever think of? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you could say that, you know, Thomas Edison made exploitation films, I mean, you know, <laughs> in 1896 or whatever. I mean, I, you know, anything, anything that's, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard genre to categorize, but at the same time, it's, you know, you look at something and think, oh, that's, that's, that's some schlock right there. And, and they aren't all <laughs> schlock. Sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a legitimately good film with a schlocky ad campaign, you know, I mean, the, when the Bicycle Thief was released, it it was you know advertised to, you know, the the art houses as a serious piece of Italian neorealism, but it also got advertised to you know drive-ins as you know, sort of a saucy you know, Euro trash type of thing, and I can't imagine what <laughs> you know what somebody who is going to see a going to the drive-in in, you know, Branson, Missouri, and the 60s thought of the bicycle thief but uh you know it definitely got advertised to that crowd and you know um but it, uh the first exploitation film i you know there's a lot of really interesting stuff um a lot of the there was a group of filmmakers they kind of self-applied the term the 40 thieves to themselves and it was a bunch of you know crooks basically and you know they were the type of guys that would they might make one movie and then instead of distributing it traditionally they'll literally drive around with a 35 millimeter print in the trunk of their car and drive from theater to theater and rent the place out just for one night and you know make a big ballyhoo and draw a big crowd and then get out of town before the locals realize that they've been had you know that they're not (laughs) seeing what got advertised to them um you know uh Mom and Dad is definitely a movie that uh, made the rounds for decades, and it was advertised as you know the the biggest uh, uh, scheme behind that movie was that it was advertised as uh, audiences segregated by sex. So you know the four o'clock show would be for women only, and the seven o'clock show would be for men only, and you know. And it was they, educational. They, yeah, it was, <laughs> they try to make you think that you know if you go to this one, you're seeing something different than what the ladies are going to see later on, or, or a, you know that's that's like a cheap explanation. When in reality, they're all seeing the same terrible movie. But you know, it's marketed and pushed, and you know, and I I like to think maybe I'm giving people a little of that. I'm I'm, I'm trying to give them good movies, but I'm also giving them a good uh, you know I'm making them making them think that they're going to see something really exciting when hopefully they're just going to have a good time. Yeah, definitely. I think that for a lot of these kinds of films, the, like the way that you contextualize them really matters just so much, you know, um, the way that you set up expectations and then kind of subvert that, you know? Um, so I don't know. I think about, um, B movies is often this potential space for weird experimentation like a freedom and fun uh, that's maybe not allowed in a regular uh, a picture, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> but I mean, but it's also you know the, a lot of uh, new talent is kind of ushered through the B movie system. Like you talked about Roger Corman and both Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese came through his kind of tutelage. Um, but do you see when you are watching these films? 
um, for the late shift? Do you see them as these kind of places for experimentation or, or is it way more like just fun and kind of free for all? And I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think the crowd thinks it's fun and free for all. I, I try to look at it from a, you know, a highbrow, a highbrow <laughs> look at lowbrow movies to a certain extent. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely am, you know, I'm looking at things and, you know, whether we're playing, you know, older movies from the 60s and 70s and, you know, some of these directors have turned into, you know, the top of the top of the bill names and, you know, some of these directors are long since forgotten. And, you know, some of the more recent independent things we've played, you know, I think some of these people have are have the chance to go on to, you know, not to downplay what they're doing now, but to go on to legitimate careers. Um, we've definitely played some some really interesting stuff that I think, despite the fact it might have, you know, vampires or something, they're, they're legitimately well-made pictures. <laughs> and uh, so that's, I think that's pretty exciting. And, you know, I'd like to think that it's, you know, I'm doing my part to help them out. You know, some of these movies outside of, you know, one screening in Iowa aren't necessarily getting a theatrical release. And now they can say, well, we did play in one theater in Iowa. So maybe, maybe that'll help them out a little bit as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll keep talking with our guest, Ross Meyer, about Late Shift at the Grindhouse. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke, who, in addition to offering a wide selection of bicycles, provide bike assembly and maintenance services at their Iowa City location, 602 South Dubuque Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Late Shift at the Grindhouse, a series that features low-budget B-movies, horror and gore fests, and camp classics every Wednesday night at Film Scene, starting at 10 p.m. Host Ross Meyer is with us today to discuss the series. So, um, talking about the differences between highbrow and lowbrow here. I just wonder, like, um, in your opinion, what's the difference between directors like Scorsese or uh, Bogdanovich or, and the directors like Tarantino or Rodriguez? Because they are very different kinds of directors, but they all came like, out from this beef movies environment. Yeah, so I'd say you know the four directors you mentioned there, they they all certainly have their their roots in the grindhouse for sure. Uh, you know, Peter Bogdanovich, the, I'll say right out, I mean, the Last Picture Show is my absolute favorite movie. You know, it's not that I just sit around and watch, you know, schlocky chainsaw movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, I do like legitimately good film, and and he's certainly <laughs> a hero of mine. But you know, I mean, you look at you know Scorsese. I mean, he he certainly makes a good picture uh, from time to time, but he also makes gangster movies, and you know that's. There's hardly uh, outside of budget and the fact that he can hire, you know, high end, you know, Academy Award winning, you know, leading actors. Um, he's still making gangster movies. He's making really good gangster movies, but, you know, they made really good gangster movies in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, guys like Rodriguez, um, you know, he makes, I think he makes B movies because they're fun. You know, they're. <laughs> But you know, clearly he's a talented director. He he makes uh, 
you know, he can work in just about any genre. Um, you know, he makes children's movies. Uh, Scorsese can make children's movies. You know, the, I mean, these guys are, are talented directors for sure. Uh, but I, I like the fact that they're, they're willing to make a, you know, a fun trashy movie every once in a while, even though it's a fun trashy movie with a $90 million budget. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I like what those guys are doing. So are you saying that like they are uh, more versatile because they have these kind of B movies education? I think you could say that. Yeah, I think you really could say that 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 they have a versatility that you know somebody else uh, who yeah. And, and again, I I don't know. I don't know how, the right way to say it, but yeah, you could definitely say that that they might have a, a stronger you know versatility. Clearly, they're they're students of you know, of film across the board. Uh, but I, I think it, it helps them that they're willing to, you know, play in the, the grindhouse sandbox every once in a while. Now, you were talking about these guys. So I want to ask about potential female audience members at the Late Shift series. Do you, do you see the numbers, uh, you know, when you're there uh, projecting, do you see, is it, is it mostly a male audience or I know that a lot of these, a lot uh, of the grindhouse pictures are pretty sexploitation, you know, women are being torn limb from limb. Gosh. Um, But like, what do you think about those kind of concerns that maybe potential audience members yeah, yeah, that's uh that's an issue I'm certainly sensitive to. Uh as far as the audiences that we've been uh bringing in on Wednesday nights, I would say it's probably a little over half uh of the the male gender, but uh not, you know, exclusively and not predominantly. Uh but, you know, probably a little over a little over half. Uh And you know, it's funny the ones that seem to draw more women are the ones that tend to be the ones uh on the on the more sensational side. And I don't know exactly what the psychology behind that is exactly, but, uh, yeah, the ones that seem to be almost more, uh, sexploitational, uh, tend to sometimes have more women. So I, I women guess women can celebrate the yeah. objectification of women <laughs> <laughs> as well as any man. Exactly. And, uh, you know, sure as far as, uh, you know, the, the content of these films, um, you know, I, I'd like to hope that, our audiences are sophisticated enough to recognize that these are, you know, that they're actors, you know, even if sometimes they're not always necessarily good actors, that they're, they're, they're actors playing a part. And I'd like to hope that, you know, these aren't, um, that there's, you know, there's nothing really tawdry going on that these are, you know, everybody's consenting to play a, a, a fictional character and, and doing it, whether, whether good acting or bad acting, uh, that, you know, we can all go home at the end of the night and say, wow, that was a doozy. It wasn't very good, but it was uh, silly. And now we can go back to our lives and not, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I certainly hope that I'm not, you know, making anybody too uncomfortable. I, I no, I'm just think thinking so. about like, so you said that often the more sensational ones even draw more of a either equal or, or more women uh, to come. Um to the shows. So I wonder if it's like a certain amount of, you know, audiences kind of exercising these weird demons, right? Like that 
that there's this terrible, terrible stuff that they're seeing on the screen and whether or not, uh, you know, who, like which gender is at the kind of more victim victimized side that there's just this urge to kind of see all of this kind of exercised on screen, you know, like that's certainly been kind of a, um, an argument I think about grindhouse films in general, that they're like somehow a place where this, where this stuff can happen so that it's not happening in reality, you know, but it's, I don't know. I agree 100% for sure. That's, uh, you know, if, if it's, you know, catharsis for somebody to have this nonviolent, you know, release happen on screen, then, then I guess, you know, great for them. Cause you know, I think we can all recognize that this is fake and sometimes it's really fake, but you know, it's, it's, uh, that they are, you know, fictional characters and it's, uh, it's not real. It's not actually happening. Nobody's really being exploited other than, you know, the audience and their, their wallets and, you know, their, their harder <laughs> money. I mean, that's, that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about exploitation films here. We're not talking necessarily about exploiting, you know, actors, actresses, uh, that sort of Although thing. that's it's, happened. But. <laughs> and, I'm sure, and I'm sure that's happened across from the, the biggest, biggest budgets to the smallest budgets. I'm sure that happens sure, yes. across, yeah. you know, from, from Hollywood to, you know, right down the block. I'm sure it happens all the time. And I certainly hope it will happen less and less. So is it really about appealing to our our basest instincts? Is that what this is all about? <laughs> I mean, is that the, I mean, exploiting the audience in terms of like just bringing them into the theater so that they can sort of see all of the sort of sex and violence to their heart's desire? Um, I mean, is that kind of at the root of all this? I, I think maybe there's an element of that, but I certainly think, you know, even in the dreadfully serious movies, I think there's still an element of, uh, you know, tongue firmly in cheek on a lot of this stuff. You know, even the stuff that's, yeah, that's, that's, you know, played straight, you know, when you see something that outrageous, whether it's, you know, meant to be comical or meant to be serious, it pretty often comes out as comical. Um, at least that's, that seems to be the, the take of the audience quite a bit. You know, even when we've played things that aren't, straight up played for laughs the audience tends to be hooting and hollering and laughing so uh, i i think that's kind of going to happen and and whether that's yeah like you're saying a kind of release uh and i don't know what the explanation for that is i don't know what the psychology is exactly um i have a question because i'm ignorant of this part of film history but i i just wonder do you know any female directors working in the field of exploitation films Catherine Bigelow certainly got her start and, you know, she was our first uh, female uh, Academy Award Best Director winner, Uh, you know, long deserved. She's made quite a few great movies, but yeah, I mean, she made uh, Near Dark, uh, which was a vampire movie and uh, Loveless, which was like a kind of a low budget, strange biker film. Uh, Doris Wishman is uh, just a fascinating story. Um, She made all kinds of really wild nudist camp movies um, and <laughs> lots of really strange... Uh, she made a pretty outrageous, like, strange sex change pseudo-documentary mondo film. Um, Roberta Findlay has made all kinds of uh, just, you know, from sexploitation to straight-up horror to, you know... 
prison melodrama. Uh, she's she's a pretty fascinating story as well, and uh, I'm is still alive. I don't think she makes movies anymore, but is still uh, you know she's she's got a lot of stuff out there. Um, the other names are escaping me right off the top of my head here, but um, I actually I'm surprised. I thought you were going to be like. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But thank you, Ross, for coming in and sharing your uh, expertise in the genre with us today. Thank you. Uh, Once again, Late Shift at the Grindhouse is a series that features low-budget B-movies, horror, and gore fests, and camp classics every Wednesday night at Film Scene starting at 10 p.m. Tonight's film is Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. That's right. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, we would like to spend these last few minutes discussing Bijou's upcoming events and series at Film Scene. Bijou is curating four series at Film Scene this fall. Our two continuing series from last year are Bijou Film Forum and Bijou After Hours. Bijou Film Forum presents one-night screenings and discussions of acclaimed films that seek to engage community members and students across all disciplines and fields of study through the art of film. Bijou Film Forum begins on September 16th with Chris Marker's Level 5. Bijou After Hours is a late-night film series of new releases and cult classics that runs every Saturday night at 11 p.m. through the academic semester. As we've been discussing on today's show, Bijou After Hours continues this Saturday with Steven Spielberg's Hook. New this semester, we also have Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness and exposure of world cinema to UI students in the greater Iowa City community. Bijou Horizons begins on September 23rd with Grave of the Fireflies. Bijou will also be presenting a monthly open screen night at Film Scene this semester. Catherine, did you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I will be hosting this new series, uh, Bijou Open Screen. It's a monthly open screen night. Uh, it's to gather both U Iowa students and community members in sharing the strange, fun things they produce, love, and obsess over. Those who submit can bring up to 10 minutes of anything out of the ordinary, obscure footage, found footage, footage produced at home or in class, on DVD to screen, and, th- and at the end of the night, we'll vote on the best submission. Uh, prizes will be available for the winner, and our first open screen event will be Sunday, September 14th at 6 p.m. with submissions accepted starting at 5. Further information and guidelines for submissions can be found on our website, bijou.uiowa.edu, which is new and fancy, as well as Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Thanks, Catherine. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Chang Min, it's a pleasure as always. The pleasure is all mine. And Ross, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you.